Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter 4. I'll be reading verses 12 through 19, but the sermon text is verses, that comes from verses 12 and 13. Hear now God's word. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. O God, our Father, We ask now that you would speak to us the words of life that we might put off the old sinful man. Speak to us the words of life that we might put on the new man who is Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Oh, Father, we long to be like Jesus. We long to do your holy will. We long to walk in obedience. We long commune with you. So be gracious to us, O God, our Father, and refresh us by the power of your Holy Spirit so that your word would heal us, revive us, and give us life. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, before we turn to God's word, I want to extend greetings to you from my home congregation, Christ Covenant Church in Langley, British Columbia. It is a, an honor, a privilege, a delight for me to be here with you in this historic, at this historic Congregation, 10th Presbyterian Church, as I trust you know, has a long and well-deserved reputation for her commitment to Reformed Orthodoxy. And it is my prayer that you will continue to let the light of the gospel shine brightly in all of your local ministries and also in your work in our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America. 
I would also like to thank you for your kindness uh, to my son, Josiah, his wife, Braylon, um, and their family, even though they are strangers, aliens, foreigners. Um, you have welcomed them. You have made them feel at home. Uh, you have received them into your church family. And, um, well, Josiah does not have a Philly accent yet, but I assume that's coming. But thank you. From the bottom of my heart, thank you uh, for the way that you have received them. The passage before us this morning is 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. I must warn you that the first time I preached on this passage in my congregation, it created a bit of a stir. Uh, we had a visitor, a relative of one of my congregants, and he came to me after uh, the service with a complaint. He had to lodge his complaint with me, so you have to give him credit for that. And he said something along these lines. He said, Pastor, that was without a doubt the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. Uh, I've preached this sermon on, one, or this, on this text one other time uh, at my congregation, um, and it was received with a little bit better welcome, but be prepared, you're forewarned. Having said that, let me offer you a defense a reason, a rationale for preaching on this passage. This passage here, Peter gives a message that needs to be heard in the contemporary um, church. I mean, it needs to be heard in the church at all uh, times in every place, but in our particular age, it needs to be heard, and it needs to be heard regularly. Let me put it to you this way that what first attracts you to the Savior, what first attracts you to the Lord Jesus Christ is what keeps you attracted to him. That which draws you to the Savior initially is what will keep you drawn to him. Now, think about it. If you came to the Savior, if you came to the Lord Jesus Christ because someone told you that Jesus is the answer to all of your financial woes, if you come to Jesus, he will give you the life of your dreams, he will grant you wealth, he will eliminate all of your debt, what will happen when you discover that Jesus doesn't necessarily do this? What will happen when the life of your dreams does not come to fruition? What will happen when that which first drew you to the Savior no longer draws you to the Savior? The same principle applies to churches. What draws you to a particular congregation often keeps you at that congregation. 
Suppose, for example, you were drawn to 10th Presbyterian because of the amazing ability of your music director, Colin. What would happen if he retired and the session hired me to replace him? You don't know how poorly I sing. Thankfully, I was muted uh, during that part of the service. But let me tell you, people would run. They would flee. The point is that what initially draws us to Christ, to the church, to his people, is what keeps us attracted to Christ, the church, and his people. Praise God that there are exceptions. Praise God that the Spirit works in us. Praise God that he changes us. He works with us. But as a general principle, it is true. And sadly, in many churches today, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of Scripture is not heralded from the pulpits. He is not proclaimed. And so people are attracted to him for all the wrong reasons. In many places today, the church is more interested in being accepted by the world than by our Heavenly Father. In many places today, the church proclaims a message of social justice instead of biblical justice because that is palatable to our culture. In many places today, an affirming sexual ethic has replaced a biblical sexual ethic because that is what will draw, at least the argument goes, that is what will draw the world to Christ. And when these people finally encounter the living and risen Christ, the glorified Christ, they are disappointed. They're not interested in him. The Christ they found so interestingly interesting to begin with, the what Christ that they were to whom they were attracted, is not the Christ they now see. And so they flee. In this letter, this precious letter, the Apostle Peter has been very clear about what ought to attract us to Christ, what must attract us to Christ, what ought to continue to attract us to Christ. Peter says in the opening verses, he says, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. Chapter 1, verse 3. And, and why is it, you ask? Why, why did Jesus need to rise from the dead? And why did he need to die? Well, Peter answers that question as well for us because he himself bore our sins on the tree and by his wounds we are healed. 
chapter 2, verse 24. For Peter, we must be attracted, we must be drawn to the Savior because the Savior is the only solution to our chief problem, which is sin. You know what sin is, right? Sin is when we rebel against God, when we reject God, when we turn our backs to God, when we disdain God, when we reject his word and disobey his commandments. We're all sinners. Ever since our first parents sinned and plunged the entire human race into a life of sin, we have lived under the dominion of sin. And Peter reminds us that through his death, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven, and through his resurrection, we are born again. And now, Peter says, we are to live holy lives and obedient lives. Chapter 1, verses 13 and following. And Peter is very clear what holiness means, what obedience means. Peter does not allow us to import our own meaning into those concepts. He doesn't say, okay, now that your sins are forgiven, you can live however you wish and call it holiness and call it obedience. No, Peter says you need to live in a very distinctive way. You need to live the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. And though Peter doesn't use that precise language, it's in this letter, that idea of living in Christ, Christ living in us. And so our lives are shaped by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are informed by the life of Jesus. Our lives are shaped by the life of Jesus. Our lives are patterned after the life of Jesus. Okay? And here's the deal. The life of Jesus was a life of suffering. This is why Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Rejoice insofar as you participate in, partake of, have koinonia with Christ's sufferings. If you belong to Jesus, if your life is hid in Jesus, if you are united to Jesus by faith, your life will be a life of suffering and fiery trials. Edmund Clowney, reflecting on this verse, says this. He says, The reality of our suffering for Christ becomes a pledge to us of the reality of our belonging 
to Christ. And that in itself brings joy to our hearts. Do we rejoice for suffering's sake? No, we rejoice because we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And our sufferings are a pledge, a promise, a token, a symbol that we belong to him. Our sufferings are evidence that we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know I belong to Jesus? How do I know that he is mine and I am his? Do you suffer? Do you suffer for Christ as a Christian? My suffering is a pledge that I belong to him. And knowing that I belong to him, I rejoice. And I rejoice in the midst of fiery trials. Alethea Jean Vanderveen was baptized this morning into the triune name. Baptism, of course, is first and foremost an act of God himself. It is God who acts first. It is God who puts his name upon this child. It is God who makes promises. It is God who calls for faith. It is God who acts and he expects us to respond in faith. There's so much that we could say about baptism, but if we are to understand baptism at all, we need to begin with the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that as soon as Jesus is baptized, he ends up in the wilderness for 40 days where he suffers, where he experiences the fiery trials. And if you are familiar with the gospel accounts, perhaps you're familiar with Mark's account. How does Jesus end up in the wilderness? Well, Mark puts it this way. He says, Mark chapter 1, verse 12, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. No sooner was Jesus baptized than the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, drove him into suffering, drove him into fiery trials. Wasn't an option. One could say that Jesus was baptized unto suffering, that baptism was his ordination unto a life of suffering. The Spirit did not drive Jesus into a life of wealth, a life of comfort, a life of prosperity where everything works out just right. The Spirit did not drive him into a life of the American dream. I'm... Confess, I'm Canadian. I'm still unsure what the American dream is. Uh, 
I Googled it in preparation for the sermon, and I'm told, so don't judge me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the American dream is still a a, a decent-sized home on a plot of land with a white picket fence. Yes? Okay, there we go. But the point is the Spirit did not drive Jesus into this kind of life. He drove him into the wilderness. And when you think about it, Jesus in this, in in, in one sense, is simply reliving the life of Israel. You will remember that after Israel was baptized, 1 Corinthians 10, as Israel makes her way through the Red Sea, She enters the wilderness where the Lord tests her to determine what is in her heart to see if she will obey the Lord. And instead of rejoicing in her testing, instead of rejoicing in the fiery trial, what did Israel do? She complained, she grumbled. And so she spent 40 years wandering, 40 years of chastisement, wandering in the desert. And one could say it was all because she refused to rejoice in her suffering. God had just saved her. God had delivered her from the Egyptians. She had everything to be thankful for, and yet she grumbled and complained. Brothers and sisters, baptism is in part an ordination into Christ's life of suffering. Elatheum might not experience great suffering early on in life. We don't know. But Josiah and Braylon, the Lord charges you to prepare her for a life of suffering because this is the Christian life. You might not suffer tomorrow. You might not suffer like Jesus did. You might not suffer like the early church did. You might not suffer like our brothers and sisters in the former Soviet Union did. You might not suffer like our brothers and sisters in China do now. You might not suffer like many of our reformed forebearers. Does the name Margaret Wilson mean anything to you? An 18-year-old covenanter girl who was martyred for her faith on April 13th, 1685. Because she refused to worship God in the way that the king commanded. She was tied to a pole in the sandlands of the sea, the Irish Sea, and left for the tide to come in and fill her lungs until she could breathe no more. You might not suffer like that. Although I dare say we in the West need to be prepared for suffering 
I suspect we will suffer greatly in the days ahead. You might not suffer like that, but make no mistake about it, the Christian life is one of suffering. It is one of fiery trials. A friend might betray you. A pastor, an elder might fall. A child might die before you. A spouse might leave you. And the list could go on and on and on. This life, in many ways, is a veil of tears that is full of hurt and pain and suffering. And Peter says, Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. You see, these trials come to us, whatever shape, whatever size, they come to us to reveal what is in our heart so that we might know God already knows what's in our heart so that we might know what is in our heart. Whether we will respond like Joseph, right, when he says to his brothers, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. I mean, how how does a man say that? You're imprisoned for 13 years. How, how, how can a man say, God intended this for good? How? Because his hope was in God. It's that simple. His hope was in God. Will we, will we, we respond like Job? Right? Everything is taken away from him. And yet he is able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord God. When the fiery trials come our way, will we be able, by the power, the gracious power of the Holy Spirit, be able to respond like Jesus, who, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. His eye was on the joy set before him. His eye was on that future glory. And part of that future glory, beloved, was fellowship with you through all eternity. Now, it must be said that the sufferings of Jesus are of a uh, qualitatively different nature, different order than our sufferings, right? Paul, uh, Peter has already said that, that Jesus suffered for our sins. Jesus died for our sins to pay our debt, to propitiate the wrath of God against sin. 
And, and our sufferings, of course, do, do not in any way cover sin. Do not in any way appease the wrath of God against sin. Jesus has done it all. Through his life of suffering, through his death on the cross. But our sufferings are indeed a participation in the life of Jesus Christ. A demonstration of our union with him. A pledge that we belong to him. His life, his suffering becomes a pattern for our lives. Now you might object as did that man the first time I preached on this passage, the man who said that was the worst sermon I've ever heard in my life. You you might object and say, well, I thought Jesus suffered so that I might be set free from a life of suffering. I thought Jesus suffered so that I might be able to enjoy all the good things in this life. Well, the answer to that question is also found in reference to Jesus. Did Jesus' sufferings last forever? What happened on the third day after his body remained in the tomb for three days? Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. Jesus rose from the dead. A victor over suffering. And he received a crown. And he received a new and glorious body, a resurrection body. And just as Jesus had to wait for his resurrection to taste victory, so we too must wait until the last day when Jesus returns, when he returns in glory and gives us glorified bodies, resurrection bodies. Peter says that right here, doesn't he? But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so we must be patient. We must. Be patient. And our patience has a particular flavor to it. Right? There's, there's two kinds of patience. There's the patience where you grind your teeth and you're like, yeah, I can do this. I can wait. And then there's joyful patience. Because you know that what awaits you is so glorious, so wonderful, that it breaks into your life now. Future joy breaks into the present so that you can rejoice now. Joyful patience. And boy, oh boy, this can be difficult. 
And I'm not a patient person. Most of us are not patient by nature. When our first parents sinned, they were impatient, right? You can you could even say that their sin was the sin of impatience. They wanted to have their eyes open. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to know good and evil. They wanted to be wise. And they didn't want to wait for God's timing. They couldn't wait. Couldn't wait for the probationary period to come to an end so that they might receive the reward. They wanted the good life and they wanted it now. Right? And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't enjoy waiting. We find it difficult to rejoice in the fiery trials that we must experience in this life. We want the comfortable life now. We want, you could even say, we want heaven now, right? And and there's a very real sense in which that is good, right? We, We want the kingdom, the fullness of the kingdom now, but we must at the same time patiently and joyfully wait for Christ's glory to be revealed on that last day. Let me be clear, in case I haven't been, let me be clear, the uniform teaching of the Bible is that this age, this present time, is an age of suffering. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8. He says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided if we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. The fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of our victory, the glory of our redemption will not be experienced in full until his glory, Christ's glory, is revealed on the last day. Now praise God that he is gracious and kind and merciful. Praise God that we in this life at times taste that final glory He's like, that the glory that is ours breaks into the present, as the author of Hebrews puts it. He says, we have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the age to come, Hebrews 6, right? We do do have a foretaste, but it's only a foretaste, A, a little sampling of the glory that will be ours. And until that day, until that day, we must wait patiently, rejoicing that we are united to Christ, rejoicing that we belong to him, 
rejoicing in the fiery trials that come our way. Brothers and sisters, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, rejoice. These sufferings are evidence of your union with Christ. They are a pledge that you belong to Christ. So rejoice that he is yours and you are his. Yes, we grow weary. Yes, suffering is never pleasant. Yes, the present age is full of fiery trials. But Christ is victorious. He is risen. The crown awaits. Be patient. Have hope. Suffer with him as a Christian so that you might rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, when you shall share in his glory through all eternity. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.